QuackCast 66 Ambiguity Some people have made the mistake of seeing Shunt's work as a load of rubbish about railway timetables, but clever people like me who talk loudly in restaurants see this as a deliberate ambiguity, a plea for understanding in a mechanized world. The points are frozen, the beast is dead. What is the difference? What indeed is the point? The point is frozen, the beast is laid out of Paddington. The point is taken. If La Fontaine's elk would spurn Tom Jones, the engine must be our head, the dining car our esophagus, the guard's van our left lung, the kettle truck our shins, the first class compartment, the piece of skin at the nape of the neck, and the level crossing an electric elk called Simon. The clarity is devastating. But where is the ambiguity? It's over there in a box. Shunt is saying the 815 from Gillingham, when in reality he means the 813 from Gillingham. The train is the same, only the time is altered. Okay, homo ergo elk. La Fontaine knew its sister and knew her bloody well. The point is taken. The beast is molting, the fluff gets up your nose. The illusion is complete. It is reality. The reality is illusion. And the ambiguity is the only truth. But is the truth, as Hitchcock observes, in the box? No, there isn't room. The ambiguity is put on weight. The point is taken. The elk is dead. The beast stops at Swindon. Chabot stops at nothing. I'm having treatment and La Fontaine can get rotted. The ambiguity has put on weight indeed. Ambiguity. Medicine like art, is filled with ambiguity, at least the way I practice it. Most of my practice is in the hospital. I am sometimes called to see patients that other physicians cannot figure out. And that puts me at a disadvantage because the doctors who are referring patients to me are all bright, excellent physicians. And often the question is, why does this patient have fever? Or why is the patient ill? Sometimes I have an answer most of the time. I do not. I am happy, however, to be able to tell the patient what they don't have. I can often inform the patient and their family that whatever they have is probably not life-threatening or life-damaging, just, the just in quotes, life-inconveniencing, and that most acute illnesses go away with no diagnoses. I always put just in air quotes because illness that requires a hospitalization is rarely a just the use of the word just without quotes is reserved for the anti-vaccine crowd and applied to the small number of deaths from vaccine-preventable illnesses in vaccinated children. John Dunn, they ain't. When asked for whom the bell tolls, it doesn't toll for them. We are excellent, I tell them, at diagnosing life-threatening problems that we can treat and terrible at diagnosing processes that are self-limited. Of course, Diagnostic testing is always variable. No test is 100% in making a diagnosis, and often with infections, I cannot grow out the organisms that I suspect is causing the patient's disease. So, for hospitalized patients, ambiguity and uncertainty are the rule of the day. And sometimes I tell this to patients and their family, and they look at me like I am a total moron. However, the situation is much better than it used to be. I am now one of the oldest physicians practicing in my hospital. Get off my lawn, punk. After 21 years, most of the old guard has retired or died, leaving me. I have gone from being the young whippersnapper to the old geezer in what seems to be a blink of the eye. However, the advantage to being old is you get to bore people with stories of your gloried past. I remember a time, I tell the residents, before CAT scans, before third-generation cephalosporins, before PCRs. I remember the beginning of the AIDS epidemic when we saw young men dying of an unknown illness. 
I still remember vividly my first AIDS patients dying from disseminated MAC. His autopsy showed more MAC than his own cells. And he offered me chocolate from a box of candy. I declined. I told him I wasn't hungry. And he told me, and I've always remembered this, I would have to spit in your mouth to give you AIDS. I did not know that at the time. No one did. So I didn't eat the candy. Today, I'd eat the candy. Times have changed, and mostly for the better. AIDS has gone from an unknown disease with a short life expectancy to a mostly chronic manageable illness whose pathophysiology is understood in remarkable detail. Medicine advances. It is often an uncomfortably slow and aggravating process because diagnostics and therapeutics that look promising at the beginning often turn out not to live up to their promise. Kind of like many people I have known. I saw a quote today, People are like slinkies. They serve no useful purpose, but can bring a smile to your face when you push them down the steps. My rule of thumb is that diagnostic procedures and therapeutic interventions are only half as good as they are in clinical trials. Some therapeutic interventions have remained in limbo my entire practice. Steroids, as an example, have been tried for every illness except for Cushing's disease. In almost every instance, they have been found wanting. When I was an intern, back last century, every patient with a neurologic event was put on aspirin and persantine. I don't think persantine is used much anymore. Common admission diagnoses were aminophilin toxicity and digoxin toxicity. Both drugs are rarely used today since we have less toxic and superior alternatives. Certainly my practice has changed dramatically over the last 21 years. I used to make a living from diseases that are rapidly becoming of historical interest. Ventilator-associated pneumonia, line-related sepsis, AIDS-opportunistic infections, neutropenic fevers, diabetic foot infections, all used to be common admitting diagnoses that resulted in infectious disease consultation. No longer. Soon I will be standing at a street corner with a sign that says, We'll do infectious disease for money, or Why lie? I need to give an antibiotic. Despite the wackaloon opinion that doctors are in it for the money, combined with big pharma greed, the last 21 years have seen a concerted effort on the part of the medical industrial complex to decrease the diseases that I treat for a living. This is not only true in infectious diseases, but cardiologists have been at the forefront to stop smoking and lipid control. The same is true for pulmonary docs. Every physician fights the battles of obesity in the outpatient clinic. Much of the time, physicians are trying to put them themselves out of work. And in infectious diseases, it seems to be successful. That is why at TAM 9 this year, where I am attending, I plan on letting everyone buy me a beer. And I am sure the rest of the science-based medicine crew would feel the same way. But no light beers, please. Medicine does advance. Now, there is an infectious disease therapy that superficially resembles acupuncture and homeopathy. It's a drug called ribavirin. It is a drug of few proven benefits. Like most scams, case reports, and uncontrolled series, and wishful thinking have kept ribavirin alive and around for my entire practice. I say superficially, as most scams have now have a proven lack of benefit. Ribavirin is an antiviral medication and has probably been tried on virtually every virus and has never been shown to have efficacy by itself in almost any infection. 
it is a benefit inhaled for RSV and combined with interferon for the treatment of hepatitis C. Ribavirin is broadly active in the test tube, but has rarely been tried in randomized clinical trials. Most of the infections that are allegedly treated with ribavirin are not that common in the United States. So, when a question of West Nile virus, dengue virus, tick-borne encephalitis virus, yellow fever virus, loss of fever, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, or hantavirus appears, the answer is often ribavirin. But is that answer correct? This leads to an interesting editorial from several years ago in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases entitled, How Medicine Advances. How? Well, the editorial concerned an article on a study that looked at the efficacy of ribavirin in the treatment of Japanese encephalitis virus. Significant time, money, and effort has been expended using ribavirin for diseases like Japanese encephalitis. But there has never been a clinical trial to demonstrate or deny the efficacy of ribavirin in the treatment of Japanese encephalitis until 2009. In clinical infectious diseases that year, they published a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind study that evaluated the effectiveness of ribavirin in the treatment of children who had Japanese encephalitis. And ribavirin was found to do nothing. What was striking about this trial, as pointed out in the editorial, was that the study was done in the poorest part of India, it was done in children, and it was done with a definitive rigor that allowed the issue of ribavirin always with the caveats that the medication was given orally and at a given dose, to be put to rest for this one infectious disease. A little more ambiguity in medicine has been removed. I think the final paragraph of the editorial sums up nicely why we do science-based medicine and the importance of doing clinical trials to determine what does and does not work. Quote, Kumar, whose study is published in the Clinical Infectious Diseases, are to be commended for refusing to bow to any of the complexities reputed to make clinical trials impossible. In Uttar Pradesh, India's most populous and poorest state, Kumar and colleagues sustained a three-year, the first randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial of ribavirin for the treatment of the most vulnerable patients, children be hospitalized with acute febrile encephalopathy, and they performed seroreactive testing for IgM antibodies to Japanese encephalitis virus. By doing so, they established that oral ribavirin at the dosage used in their study did not improve either early or late outcomes. By demanding scientific justification for investment in this mode of therapy, they have encouraged searches for more effective interventions and prevented the expenditure of scarce resources ineffectively. Both faith and science are important components of the art of medicine. We should not mistake one for the other. End of quote. I wish, besides sarcasm punctuation marks, we had whiny little baby tags, since the lament of most scam proponents is that their particular intervention can't be tested because of the complexities that make their clinical trial impossible. Right, Mr. Powers. It is easier to curse the darkness than to light a candle as far as scam proponents are concerned. There is then the more difficult application of applying the data. 
If someone has a long history of being committed to a treatment, it is surprisingly difficult to get individuals and groups to alter their behavior. I expect the urge to give ribavirin for Japanese encephalitis will rapidly fade. Not so the urge to balance key, fix subluxations, or realign the energy flux. Wait, that last is either Riki or Galaxy Quest. I don't know. The latter, at least, is recognized as fiction. Unfortunately, there are many other infections for which people will try ribavirin and for which there are no randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials. Ribavirin will continue to be a drug searching for a disease. But still, medicine progresses. Studies get done, and there is an incremental improvement in our understanding and the diagnosis and treatment of diseases. And slowly and painfully, medicine changes. Emphasis on slowly. Change has to be balanced with the knowledge that much of what the information we have in medicine is not final. When I talk about studies with residents, I try and be careful to mention the often endless caveats about the applicability of the results beyond the study population. Back in the day, for example, it seemed that all coronary disease studies were done in old, white, smoking male veterans. Probably widely applicable, but maybe not. But as an old white man, I can be sure that I am taken care of. There's an old saying that goes something like, be neither the first to abandon the old, nor the first to use the new. I certainly feel that way about antibiotics. Over the years, new drugs have been approved, released into widespread use, and found to have serious side effects that resulted in their being withdrawn from the market. So I'm always a little leery about new medications and new treatments, unless I do not have options. So I look back over 21 years of infectious diseases, 25 years of being a physician, and note the incredible changes that have occurred. Diagnostics have improved, therapies have improved, and more importantly, diagnostic and therapies that have been shown to be useless have been abandoned. Abandoned because they do not work. Medicine advances. Contrast that with the bet noir of this podcast. Scams, supplement, complementary, and alternative medicine. Anyone who subscribes to the concept of reality-based medicine would say at this point that the preponderance of data strongly points to the conclusion that most scams do not work. Acupuncture, homeopathy, energy medicines, etc. do not materially alter disease. Yet has any of these ever been abandoned? Nah. It would seem that they are being embraced, at least in academic institutions. Scams are an archetype example of failing up. The more data that shows they don't work, the more they are used. Weird, huh? It has been noted with scam studies that better and better studies show less and less effect until well-designed studies show no effect. For the last decade, it was seen that the greater the failure, the greater the spread into academia, and the more popular the scam. By the same standards, we should be using internal mammary artery ligation for coronary artery disease, high-dose chemotherapy for bone marrow transplant for breast cancer, and continue to suppress all abnormal cardiac rhythms in heart attack patients. All of these interventions failed spectacularly, and we no longer use them. But under the standards of scams, not only should they be embraced, each should have an endowed chair at a local university.
Scams probably are growing for financial benefit. Since standard medicine has declining reimbursement and most alternative therapies are out of pocket, it is a good cash cow for institutions that want a flow of money and are not picky about their intellectual standards. Not only are standard scams proliferating, they often combine in the most peculiar ways to come up with new variations. Dr. Moreau would be impressed with these slow mutant reassortments. Acupuncture, there are at least six kinds, morphing into acupressure, laser acupuncture, and even acupuncture using tuning forks and color. I predict, and I'm going to get my James Randi million dollars for this, that soon there will be dark energy acupuncture. You heard it here first. Now don't get me wrong, I am jealous. I would love to combine infectious disease with, well, I don't know, cardiac bypass surgery and make some real cash, but they just don't mix. It is said that the majority of medical practice has no basis in science-based medicine. Certainly in the practice of infectious diseases in the hospital, that is often the case. I will see an organism in an odd place, for example, a gamella endocarditis, and there are no long-term randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials to determine what the best therapy is for gamella endocarditis. There are probably never will be. It is so rare that it is probably impossible to generate enough cases to do a clinical trial. I am stuck with the basic principles of biologic plausibility and in vitro antibiotic susceptibilities. And often that is enough. I know that if I can kill the bug in the test tube, I can often kill it in the patient as well. In the absence of clinical trials, reality occasionally can determine effective therapy. It is quite a stark contrast between scams and medicine and how they are practiced. As I say, medicine changes. Or perhaps it would be better to say medicine evolves. The old is shown to be worthless. It is abandoned. Patient care improves. And even when there are no good clinical trials to guide therapy, we often have prior plausibility and biologic plausibility to help guide our therapies. Not always, as ribavirin demonstrates, but we have to fight the war with the armies we have. Advances have not been without their side effects and bad consequences. No good deed ever goes unpunished. But medicine still adheres to the Victorian principle that human societies are perfectible. And while we always fall short of our goal, what has been accomplished and what is attempted to be accomplished has been admirable. Scams persist with no improvement, no evolution, no ambiguity, and they are increasingly discredited by reality. Nothing is ever abandoned. Instead, they persist, mutate, and grow. With alternative memes, what determines replicative fitness is not, apparently, the real world. Oh well, gives me something to talk about on this podcast. And so ends the 67th Quackcast. Don't forget, you can find more Mark Chrislip at moremarkchrislip.squarespace.com and maybe I'll see you at TAM9. Otherwise, this ends this Quackcast.